This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, and welcome to the 3D Pod. As always, we're your hosts, Maxwell Bogue and Joris Peels. And joining us today on the pod will be Greg Paulson from Zometry, and we'll be discussing a lot of fun and interesting technology that they're bringing into the 3D print space and how it can be directly applied for both manufacturing and different techniques. Exomony? Am I saying that right? Exometry? Uh, I think Xerox, so Zometry, Uh, like a Z. Zometry. (laughs) Zometry. Zometry. And you're the applications engineer... You're from the, the lead of the applications engineering team, correct? Correct. So tell us about exonomy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm gonna... Xylophone. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. we can, we can, so, you can try mispronouncing it differently every single time. And so you can... <laughs> I'm dyslexic. I just have a name like Benedict uh, Cumberbatch, where you just yeah, say exactly. the name wrong every like, single time. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, so, I, I, xylophone. That's xylophone. nice. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, everyone screws up uh, the 3D doodler. Everyone says 3D doodler for some reason because yeah. they add yeah. a D. So I, I'm I'm sorry. I don't mean to mispronounce the name. It's it's all right. But I, I you know one way I can talk about zometry right now, and uh, it is it is a funny story actually with the pronunciation of it uh, uh, because we changed our name very early on to zometry. So when we started our business, we had a different name and we changed to uh, um, zometry. And we were saying exometry, and, uh, and then one of our investors, uh, key investors at the very beginning, was kept on saying zometry. And our, so our CEO comes back one meeting, and at this point we're so small, it's you know less than twenty people. So he's like, "Hey guys, we're we're going to start calling ourselves zometry now." And it was just like, boom, it stuck. So we are we were zometry, uh, but zometry is a company. Um, we uh, started this concept late twenty thirteen of how to make a traditionally opaque industry uh, that is huge, much more transparent, and much more streamlined using advanced technology. So in this case, this was custom manufactured parts. It's like an $80 billion market uh, out there, but it's still very local to local. Like it, it was a um, transactional, I'm an engineer in uh, this area. I'm going to reach out to my local firms in this area for manufacturing. And uh, you find pricing that would be very, very wildly, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent in pricing for the same part. And there's no real reason why, other than maybe that part's not a good fit for those shops or they're at capacity. And so we created this platform, and that's what Zometry.com is. It is a manufacturing platform that, using AI and machine learning, uh, it'll actually instantly interpret a 3D model as you upload it and spit out a price and lead time immediately. And we have a bunch of processes. Uh, so we have the traditional processes like CNC machining, sheet metal, um, injection molding. We also have a variety of 3D printing processes uh, as well that instantly quote, starting with you know SLS uh, 3D printing, multi-jet fusion, which are both powder bed, uh, direct metal sintering, fused deposition modeling, polyjet, SLA. You know, there's a bunch of technologies out there. We're constantly adding to this platform. So 
Zometry is this platform for getting pricing, lead times, and clicking by, giving that Amazon.com experience of ordering something that is custom that's never been made before. You could just upload your CAD file, get that instantly. Uh, no, just, do you guys actually own the machines then, or you're farming it out to different vendors or different companies that then do the work, or is it a combination of the two? So it's a it's a combination of the two, but really our focus is on our manufacturing partner network. So we have over 3,000 manufacturers that have been vetted as Zometry manufacturing partners, and they are actually fulfilling the vast majority of the work. We had a CNC shop, and we have active additive uh, manufacturing shop, which is actually best in class. It's fantastic in our Gaithersburg facility. Uh, but those were really started out to get this data. Like, what does it actually take? What does it actually cost? Like, what are the what are the factors and variables that help us make this decision? So they're almost thinking about, think about them as a professional service that is also our laboratory for this data science portion of our, our of our AI learning. And um, as we've grown, you you if you had one shop, you'd run into every problem that a shop has. When someone falls in love with you, they hug you to death. You know, they keep on giving you work until you're yeah. at capacity, or they're giving you work that they love your quality. So they'll give you something that is really not in your scope. But they're like, can you please do it? Because we just want you to do this right. And uh, and this is the you know rise and fall of a lot of, of a lot of shops. There is you get to this capacity, and uh, then all of a sudden you become their worst shop because now you're late or um, you're having quality exceptions or one you know one bad job will just sink the entire ship. So by us having this distributive manufacturing network, it's a win-win because one we're connecting manufacturers with work that they may never access. So Zometry, when we you know pitch to our manufacturing partner network, uh, we pitch it like we are the biggest storefront you'll ever have in your life. Your 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 business will never have a storefront as big as Zometry.com's. And we are able to give you work that actually fits your shop the best. In fact, we almost have like a Netflix rating, like, hey, you know, uh, Zometry recommends this part for your shop, uh, you know, after after other parts you've made. So we have this really cool job board that they look at and it shows them the job, um, what we're going to pay them, uh, the scope of the work, and the lead time. And depending on what process you're doing, if it's 3D printing, you know, it'll be SLA, uh, 12 parts clear, uh, we'll pay you $960, and we need it in uh, five business days. And they'll actually accept that work, and that's, boom, instant PO. If it's not a good fit, they could just say, I'll pass on it, because you have other manufacturers on our network that may be able to do that, do that work. They can fulfill the order, track it through our online job portal, and ships out. Uh, so it's it's a very streamlined, everything like basically technology-based manufacturing platform. So what, we've heard this before. If other companies have done it, and why don't you take the extra step and seeing what kind of capacity I have, or do a little bit of the machine learning on the types of jobs I'll accept to to see you know, how much volume I have in my machine? Because that's the value always has been for me. If I run an SLS build. SLS is a good example. Other things are less of a good example, but and I could put an extra ten percent of parts in there. Uh, you know, my whole the whole economics of my business improve. So why aren't you doing that? Why is it still a question of accepting jobs and not? Uh, not? So you're talking about the assignment strategy, which yeah. is I assign you a set of jobs, and you better give a good reason why you say no, because it's mm -hmm. based off your your capacity. Um, this is it's kind of the difference between a taxi uh, dispatch system where you're mm -hmm. calling into the dispatcher, dispatcher saying. Um, I'm going to give it to this person. They're going to drive through versus a Uber or Lyft strategy. So mm -hmm. we're taking more of the Uber or Lyft strategy, where we're saying, "Hey, there's a fare in your area. Uh, we don't necessarily know the real time reasons why you may take or pass on an opportunity, but we're showing mm -hmm. you the opportunity that we think is a good fit for you, and mm -hmm. you you could instantly make a decision 
on that whether to take it or, or pass. So it's a little bit more flexible and real time than say a dispatching system, which usually has at you know at its best an eight hour delay. Because I'm usually uh, at night, I'll be saying, "Hey guys, I have so and so volume that I'm hoping to fill up tomorrow," and then they'll then they'll assign that to me. But you know, what if I my what if my machine goes down for PM or something like that? You know, there's these things that happen in real time that having our system makes it a little bit more flexible for. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when do I get paid? Because that's always a problem with these kind of uh, <laughs> things. Oh. Like if I yeah, if I take an order today and I ship it tomorrow, when am I going to get the money from you? Yeah, so actually that's one of the reasons why we're so attractive to a lot of these small businesses because uh, uh, a, lot of sm- a lot of the businesses, especially in our machine world, are sub-20 people. And, mm-hmm. and payroll is a big deal. And uh, getting paid is a very big deal. And I've definitely been those been in the other side of the situation where I've been a supplier to engineering firm making parts. And on some of these large companies, they've leveraged like a net 90. And it's just, you know, it, it hurts. Yeah. Uh, so we actually pay twice a month. And mm-hmm. so if we have two set dates where we, uh, where we drop pay, and essentially once you deliver it, it's not going to be the next date, but the date afterwards. So you're actually paid more timely than most, than most net 30s. Well, that's excellent, dude. Because I think I think yeah. definitely for a small business, you know, the idea that you're financing a large corporation sometimes like it's 120 days, right? If you, oh, if you add all in, oh, it's yeah. insane. It, it's it's uh, tough, and uh, and like I said, you're you're trying to report on these metrics, and you have this huge shift. And I'm you know I'm buying materials from my shop, so I, I ran additive in a uh, at an engineering firm at one point, and you you have to you know you have to buy stuff. Eighty eight dollars a kilogram, right? And and it's uh, with that 120 day. Uh, uh, you know, after after receipt from them mm-hmm. for them to pay is huge. Are all the shops are they are they geo restricted or can it be anywhere in the world or? Um, the the majority of shops are uh, domestic. Okay. Um, so we have started to uh, explore international options. In fact, actually, as of this morning, a press release uh, dropped with an investment from uh, Bosch uh, Global. Okay. So we Ooh. have we have an investment is actually added on to a recent investment. So we recently had. In total, fifty-five million dollars invested into Zometry. BMW was part of it, but Bosch and Dell joined on as new investors to Zometry. And what's cool about that is, uh, you know, we have GE, BMW, Dell, Bosch—all of them were customers of Zometry before they invested. So they were using us and really liked the concept, and actually have uh, gone from customer to investor. So it's a really cool story. But with some of these, you know, they're global organizations, and uh, there's definitely a global focus over the next few years here. Yeah, I have to imagine like Germany has a bunch of shops that you could take advantage yeah. of. <laughs> oh, uh, SLS, SLS in Europe is a completely different story. It's like machine shops in the U.S. Uh, machine shops in the U.S. are kind of scattered and throughout and they each has their own uh, needs. But additive in the U.S. is much more concentrated into larger bureaus that usually have multiple options and a larger array of machines. Uh, but it's, you know, one bureau with uh, a bunch of machines versus, you know, a thousand bureaus or two thousand bureaus scattered across the U.S. Where Europe technologies like SLS have and powder bit fusion, even like um, a metal, have matured a little bit uh, sooner, and so the industry is a little bit more dispersed uh, out in Europe. So you offer a bunch of different technologies. I'd really like to get us a little bit into uh, talking a little bit more about the, the application side of things. I think I think a lot of people outside looking in may have the, the mistaken identity that there's you know, 3D printing is one technology, or 3D printing is is you know a bunch of different vendors maybe. But they're, they're, these technologies are fundamentally very very different. Listeners go a little bit more into these different technologies, and when they make sense. 
and you know, for me, for example, the you know, if if I if I want ten thousand or something, it's always going to be SLS, and if I want one big thing, it's always going to be FDM, and if I want a, a smooth thing, it's going to be SLA, right? Yeah. So there's a there's like there's a very there's a very kind of rough guide to to, to the, these things. I mean, what are your feelings on for which process for which uh, type of application? Yeah, and this is actually been my last decade essentially is the when to choose and strengths and trade-offs uh the the biggest thing to kind of set your mental model when you're talking about additive manufacturing is that we have traditional manufactured parts all around us and so the expectation is set whether it's a conscious decision or not around smooth parts from uh, molding which is actually a secondary process from machining you machine the mold then you put plastic in uh in the mold to make that part so you get the surface finish of you know what will be a machine part so that smooth finish or you get a and you still have these great mechanical properties or uh, machining or tube bending sheet bending these forming processes it's all this expectation from you know raw material that's then reduced so subtractive manufacturing uh into that shape and it's it's everywhere. I'm looking around me right now, and I probably have a thousand subtractive manufactured parts, you know, in the neck, in this four foot area of uh, booth that I'm in. And so, when we talk about additive, it's more like the wild west. And you're absolutely right; it's an umbrella of various technologies. And ASTM can't even keep up with defining them because as soon as they define something, a hybrid technology comes out where it's just kind of bridging the gap, and you're not really sure which what uh, which way to put it in. But in general, you know, my my decision tree usually starts to simplify things. And to your point, why not choose SLS? <laughs> so that's yeah. that's where yeah. I I start. And SLS, for those who are not aware, is a powder bed fusion technique. So I have a um, layer of powder distributed across in a heated build chamber. Um, a laser hits and etches the cross section of that of that material, um, basically fusing that, creating a, a selective melt. And that melt is deep enough to actually penetrate uh, into the Z layer. That gives you your Z direction. But the beauty, beautiful thing about SLS is, as I repeat this layer by layer, I'm actually suspending these parts in the powder. So it's kind of like taking a golf ball, sticking it in flour, and letting go. The golf ball doesn't float, it doesn't sink, it just stays there. And with your parts, they're doing the same thing. So I can actually fill this entire build area, not just with the X and Y as a platform, but in the Z direction. So, you know, a lot of standard builds are 13 by 13 by 23 inches, and you're and you're able to stack a bunch of parts. So SLS is typically building somewhere between like 30 to 300 parts of from various jobs, various geometries, various functions in this, in this uh, process. So it ha it's very commoditized. Uh, but I always like to tell our customers, but you get to choose from nylon or nylon. You know, you, it's, it, is, right. <laughs> it is one material, you know, and uh, there's a reason why Nylon 12 is so popular. Uh, it, it tends to have a very, very small melt zone, which allows you to basically tweak just enough laser to get it to melt without it actually puddling and kind of bleeding through the edges. Um, so that's why you can still get crisp features decently well with SLS. But because it's powder bed, uh, to your point about surface finish, my parts tend to have a sugar cube to eggshell at best finish without any further post-processing. So when you say 10,000 units, absolutely, I'd be looking at a process like powder bed fusion or HP multi-jet fusion, which is does a similar thing with a powder bed, but it has a different way to actually fuse the parts together to make those processes because I don't need support structure. Post-processing post is standardized. Uh, it's very repeatable, and I have a much better economy of scale, but I do have the trade-off of my surface roughness of a detail resolution that doesn't go as high as say SLA, which is a photopolymer 
uh, process where I'm able to get a little bit deeper uh, defined resolutions, not uh, just on, on the X and Y and even like on the Z stepping, I get reduced stepping. Uh, so when to not choose SLS, I, I look at surface finish. I look mm -hmm. at material choice. So surface finish, uh, if it needs to be finer, I'm usually going to a photopolymer process, uh, stereolithography SLA, like I mentioned, polyjet or um, multi-jet, which is kind of like the 3D systems polyjet, or even like stuff like DLS that's coming out from carbon. Uh, these all have smoother finishes because they're coming from a liquid, whether that liquid's uh, from in a vat and cured up with a UV laser or, uh, or UV projector, or uh, polyjet and multi-jets use uh, micro droplets like an inkjet printer to produce that. But either way, that that liquid uh, helps define a better surface finish from the get-go, so it looks more like a molded part. There's still some stepping. You can still tell it's additive if you, if you look closely, but it's much uh, more uh, uh, much more Fine. cosmetically, yeah, cosmetically pleasing from the print. Also, of course, porosity is a, a huge issue in SLS as well, right? Definitely. I'm, uh, I am I got into SLS in 2007, and when I was, when I was working uh, um, working these machines and and I was talking to our lab tech, you know, we were talking about uh, post-processing and dyeing and, and other things. And, you know, it's it's remarkable to me that surface finish improvements or technologies haven't really evolved that much for, for SLS. You have that matte finish uh, that's kind of the outer quarter millimeter uh, does have some absorption to it. So I can sterilize it, uh, this, this nylon 12 powder, I can't use it in medical applications, but they're usually for disposables. So, like I'm going to toss it after I'm after, after I'm done, um, because yeah, it'll stain. And it can it can get gross. If I dye it, it's because I can control the stain, right? I could dye blue mm -hmm. or dye black, and I use the property of staining to to make that part. But inherently, if I scratch SLS, for example, you're going to see white underneath after that quarter uh, quarter millimeter, and it'll still continue to stain. There's some new post-processing technologies out there, like AMT has something that's I'm I'm kind of excited to get my hands on, where it uh, it actually is kind of like a vapor smooth, or it conceptually it's like a vapor smooth, where it will smooth these materials that are extremely chemical resistant. So it's not like an acetone smoothing; it'll uh, it does something. Uh, and <laughs> we don't know what it does something. <laughs> it does something. It's based off this process called push, which I'm not sure if you guys remember, like the uh, under Armour sneakers that with the red kind of lattice uh, TPU. Yeah. yeah. That, that's that's what the AMT's technology is based off of. Is that it, that's a AMT's commercializing the technology that did that smoothing. And uh, and I'm ex actually excited about that because you're talking about SLS, which was invented you know in the mid '90s or so, and now finally there's something that can actually make it more cosmetically appealing. So a dimension as well is working on that as well, a multi-step thing, and and other firms as well. Rischler is also doing it. Yeah, um, Dimension. I I like what they've done on their post processing for SLS. Uh, I've I can't tell you how many hours uh, I've spent. Although it's almost like therapy, of uh, sitting there arms in and you know boiling hot yeah. powder uh, breaking out parts. Uh, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's insane. I mean, the, the problem with this is that about thirty percent of part cost in in, in polymer is, is is manual labor. And it's never going to work. We're never going to be able to industrialize this technology properly if, if, if a third and two-thirds, uh, if we're talking about metals, is, is manual, manual labor. It's just never going to work. So it's it's not even nice. It doesn't even expand the application area for SLS. It's, it's necessary uh, to, to bring down these like exorbitant costs. 
and it's still the cheapest process, which is is kind of interesting to think about. But it's cheap because of that economy of being able to nest multiples. So mm-hmm. it's you almost as a business have to plan your labor and breakout as just uh, overhead. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just going to exist every day. Um, mm-hmm. It's not it's not applied to the job. It's just more like the overhead. It's kind of like the ownership of the machine. It's like you will have staff that will be doing this every day. Yeah. Yeah. But I like what I do love about. SLS is it's predictable. I still mm-hmm. think in SLS. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of like FDM stuff lately, and a lot of uh, stuff. Uh, you know, the FDM was really big, and and, and a lot of projects I did uh, right before I started doing this. But still, I think in SLS. If I'm designing a product or I help somebody make a product or something, in my head, the pricing of SLS is always going to be there because it's so predictable, yeah. and and how how parts look as well. Yeah, and I think FDM, I've I've converted over. To liking mm-hmm. it, to lo- to to actually loving it for a lot of applications, because I, I was, you know, SLS was kind of what I learned first. Um, it's such a general purpose thing, you know. I was running in the lab, and I had, in some way, shape, or form, for you know, you know, five plus years, I was dealing directly with machine or manufacturer of SLS parts. And uh, FDM, I would use for, as you said, if there's a, I need this material, or mm-hmm. I need, I need, I have a size constraint where it needs to get this big. Because SLS, because it is an unsupported thermal process, the bigger you get, even if you have the build platform that size, the bigger you get, the higher risk the job can be to warping or one little layer deviation or just right. something something that can happen with my build. Where FDM, especially uh, what we run at Zometry and across our network as well, is F- uh, Stratasys Fortis platforms, which are extremely predictable, extremely reliable. And so if I put a bunch of parts in a Fortis 900 and say they're all, you know, like I have like four or five, 16 parts in there and it says, hey, your build time is 88 hours, I can uh, press go and come back 88 hours later and expect to have parts. Uh, and also, you know, I just take it off of the, the, the buy sheet and I'm done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The post process is very limited and even uh, stuff that has soluble supports, you, you run in essentially a caustic bath. Uh, to get those support taken care of, so there's more automation. But the scalability, you know, a lot of times if a part takes five hours to build, uh, the, the second part's got to take five hours to build too. So scalability has to do with multiple platforms, not just one big, big platform. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually prefer, so say I had a, you know, a bunch of small parts and say I had to make, you know, a hundred of them, I very likely would actually not dedicate one machine to make a hundred, either all one, uh, all on the same platform at the same time, or um, in uh, a linear action, I'd actually have an army of machines where I'd take four or five of our machines, uh, mm-hmm. put uh, each one running these platforms, so I'd be running those simultaneously. And mm-hmm. so one of the misconceptions is that bigger is not always better when it comes to production additive manufacturing. A lot of times having a small, uh, an army of small platform machines will give you higher throughput, which is like how many parts can I deliver to my customers per day? Yeah, that's what interesting because I am one of the very few people that I've been saying for years now that we that the logical extremeness of this and the same thinking. I'm glad you at least subscribe to that. Is that we're going to have a cluster of 50 desktop machines and that's going to be what's going to be used for production? Do you believe I in see, that or? Uh, I I think so. Like I I've seen iterations and and maker farms and there's some you know some really really interesting stuff coming through there. Um, having the reliability of you know what what we're talking about with Fortis and, you know, like EOS, SLS, and having the reliability of those machines for throughput is really important because I have a promise to my customer yeah. that to, to deliver on time for them, especially, yeah, if you're working on volatile, volatile builds where even, you know, a, a 
part that could be uh, 12 inches tall may take uh, 9, 10, 11 hours. And mm-hmm. if I have a three business day lead time, if I have a build fail, you know, seven inches in, I have I can't just be like, oh, let me just grow another few inches on this. I have to scrap and restart the project. Right. Uh, so, so I, I've, I've done calculations actually where we print 10% more. Or twenty percent more, even I think it was twenty percent more, mm-hmm. and then even then it would be really comfortably a uh, much lower price, uh, just because you're paying so much less for the material. Yeah, and it's interesting. So we talk about this uh, um, when you talk about throughput. Uh, I, I love the book The Goal, which is, it came out mm-hmm. in the late '80s, and it's like the best book ever because it's like written like a cheesy '80s story, <laughs> but it actually has a good concept to it about uh, finding your bottlenecks and kind of eliminating them. But it's, uh, it's not it's it's not eliminating them. It's more like shrinking them down to the size of the other processes. So SLS, for example, we have a very streamlined SLS business uh, in our shop, and most shops run this way. And MultiJet Fusion is the same way, where these machines are met with exchangeable. They're made with exchangeable build trays. So what I can do is my goal is to keep those machines making parts. Uh, and so if I can control that, the time it takes to set up is the same time to. Um, to grow parts is the same time to break out parts. Then I actually have an efficient process. If growing all of a sudden takes like 40, you know, 40, 50, 60% more time, then I have a backlog, you know, backlog somewhere. But if I could keep this process, essentially I could take out my exchangeable tray, put it in cooling, while the tray, the tray from the morning or yesterday is already cooled and during breakout, and then the new tray is in and, um, and running parts. So I could do a three tray system per machine and uh, and run a high throughput business uh, that way. So sometimes that compartmentalization kind of to the point like is it a maker farm or something else is what can I compart like take and make it exchangeable out versus integrated in. I have an example just I want to throw this out here for the other way like of, of uh, when you integrate too much in. We ran uh, I think it was more pain than pleasure but we were running um, it used to be Phoenix but uh, it was a three systems Pro X 300 machine and they had that had an insight to recycling for um, for material and one of the problems was if the material recycler jammed, you couldn't build parts. Yeah. So it was almost too coupled with uh, <laughs> uh, with with this. So you actually had to like it had like a six hour sifting and recycling program, and they they've they've completely replaced that machine with another type of machine now. But uh, and a lot of reasons because of that. But this this you basically had the machine to have to stand still for like four or six hours while I couldn't even get my, you know, my build tray out to like do other work on it. So it was uh, it was almost too coupled. In that manner. If you look at aerospace and stuff, these guys seem really intent on concentrating their manufacturing risk on 3D printing and concentrating it in less or less processes, but that one critical key bottleneck process is going to be 3D printing. And and so that's it's very interesting that, that they're seem to be moving towards that. And then you have you know two very divergent approaches to me. One is the additive industries approach. Which is it's a metal printer, it's a very expensive metal printer, and usually with metal printing, uh, you know, you have to take the tray off of the machine, you have to de-stress it, uh, depowder it, uh, suck all the powder away, uh, cut the thing off the platform, and all this kind of stuff in a bunch of separate st- steps outside the machine, and then uh, you're exposed, and the environment is exposed to this, this titanium powder stuff, which is not great, and, mm-hmm. and so in order to then make that a much cleaner, much more GMP type of thing. What the additive industries paradigm is is one machine and there's a bunch of modules mm-hmm. and then so it'll go to the automatic depowdering module and then it'll go to the automatic distressing module and that's kind of how they 
seem to be doing this compared to like the other metal printers, which are just standalone units. So we're going for a big, large industrial standalone unit and additive industries is saying, look, we're going to keep this thing in a protected atmosphere in one machine. And then we're going to have that problem that you said, that if something fails in that thing, then it's going to be catastrophic. You have a serial shutdown. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's it's interesting because they're not wrong. You know the meme like one does not simply walk into Mordor. Like yeah. there's like one does not one. Does, I'm holding like my ring like right now. If this is a video, you'd see it. Like but one does not simply create a metal printed part. You know it, it is it is uh, as he said. It's like the the printing actually is fairly safe and predictable for the most part if you have good software build setup and parameter set. It's repeatable. Uh, the post processing is custom. Like right. every every part has its own custom post post processing need. So additive industries is like what they're doing is is set up for I am doing serial production of a part. So in this case, like the only thing this thing makes is this type of turbine blade. Like and and I'm I'm running through and it's already qualified. It's qualified for this machine and everything's set up in tune in this beautiful symphony of printing and post processing. Mm -hmm. uh, my, you know, the business at Zometry, we are custom manufacturing. Like I said, it's it's still like it's still a you know eighty billion dollar market for you know uh, full spread, uh, including traditional and additive, and additive is definitely still a small portion. <laughs> but that, uh, but we're we're not knowing what we're going to do this afternoon or tomorrow. Like we are waiting for our customers to upload their three D CAD files to the site, uh, you know, get the price, you know, hopefully it's competitive and the time timeliness is good, and click buy. Our setup would not be good for that type of it, that type of machine because we don't know what's going to be there tomorrow unless yeah. of course the software got better to the point where you could do support uh strategy generation automatically right yeah so um there's there's uh, some really good software coming out that pre-deforms parts and uh that's very exciting on the metal side i think that's something we're missing um yeah mm -hmm. and Let's just talk about something else that's making a comeback. Um, well, you know, I was getting into SLS, like I said, in 2007 was my earliest exposure. And I remember a tech was coming in to work on the machine, and he was showing me something. He's like, take a look at this. And he's like, that's printed metal. And it was, uh, I think it was called direct metal at the time, but it eventually was X1. And uh, X1 uh, does a binder jet metal process. And, uh, and it's funny because, again, over, you know, well over a decade ago, and they've been in the business. So they haven't. They haven't gone away by any means. Uh, but you, now, all of a sudden, you see stuff like uh, the production system uh, from desktop metal, or and you're seeing HP's metal jet, and uh, you're looking at these technologies that are they're binder jet metal, and they're making a comeback. But I think what was missing a lot of, in, in my opinion, because I do spec manufactured parts, like I, I need to have my parts fit when the engineer buys them. I need to make sure that the, what they get is got to fit into their assembly. Binderjet inherently has that post furnace, which created creates um, unpredictable shrinkage, and that has been a biggest challenge for me, as a service in pushing a out of a process like that, is when I can't protect the shrinkage, like for example, like the overall body may shrink one to two percent, which X Y and Z is kind of predictable, but internal holes may be four to six percent, and then like you also have deflection that happens in the you know in the furnace and and other things. Uh, that go on so i think software is now catching up to this already existing hardware and if if they're getting better at pre-deforming so essentially predicting how it's going to bend or warp um, how it needs to be supported to achieve these like uh, holes and other features how they need to be kind of deformed to compensate for shrinkage then it becomes a drag and drop process then the <laughs> talents of the software 
So sorry. So the software is actually compensating around the unpredictable nature of the shrinkage. Yeah. So think about it like a virtual machine. Like you may have heard this a, a lot in like CNC machining, where you have simulators that are basically like, "Hey, I'm your, you know, I'm your Mazak machine with multi-axis, and I'm running through to look for collisions and stuff." So it's right. this, this virtual machine trying to figure out the problems before you actually press go. And that software is catching up on the in the additive side, where it's virtually predicting from that process of building to um, uh, post post baking and any deformations that happen just to kind of give you an idea of dmls dmls is a room temperature process so you're putting a lot of energy in that metal to make it melt right uh, you know you're using like usually like 100 400 watt lasers i've literally seen parts tear themselves in half with the stresses that have been created in them and build so if you're building something that's more like a brick or a hockey puck that cross section you're, you're basically strong-arming the melt of the metal across that cross-section. Uh, it's going to create all these micro-stresses because you're basically doing like you know, a million micro-welds. At some point, it's going to be like, I yield. Or the part, the part fights the build plate, so you have this large steel build plate. And uh, I've seen parts win where the build plate deflects up. And you're talking like an inch-and-a-half piece of steel you know, moving up. So it's, uh, uh, it definitely you know, it starts with good design. You know, uh, good software helps, helps you on the setup, good parameters, good machines. And then you have to post-process it. And that, you know, so there's a lot of opportunities for deviation there. Uh, in BlenderJet, by the way, I do, you know, X1 is capable of making millions of parts, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and making millions of, of parts to a tolerance that perhaps wouldn't work in an aerospace environment, but would work in a lot of other things, right? Uh, um, absolutely, yeah. On the other hand, I'm much more skeptical about other binder jet technologies as as they're presented to us because some of them uh, just don't work. You know, I think I think it's uh, it's a bit. I'm really just skeptical about the rollout of that technology, and and I think it's a risk for us as an industry. I'm hopeful. Like I only have one uh, setting in my in my emotional command is being optimistic of this uh, mm -hmm. because I want it to work because as you said, it's scalable. So. DMLS may actually, you, you know, may actually run into scaling issues as far as multiple productions. The same thing as FDM and, and SLA and some of these other platforms. When I'm stuck to a build tray, I'm essentially confined to my XY. So the thing I can do is I can make that faster. I can make the build tray exchangeable. I can make, you know, multiple arrays of things, you know, scanning at once. Uh, but I still am kind of stuck to that build tray. Build tray so that scalability is still uh, a big concern when you think about, I want to go from prototype to production in this platform. Mm -hmm. On these powder bed platforms, you know, again, going back to SLS and uh, multi-jet fusion and these binder depth metals, you know, there's hope. There's hope that this can be a more scalable platform. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if I find that binder jet solutions get me similar um, similar costs and benefits as casting, you know, it may actually be a category killer for certain uh, certain applications that used to be traditionally cast. And so, like, mm -hmm. there's there's places for these. Uh, but I think again, that software, that predictability, um, me not needing to make you know five six iterations doing CAD offsets myself in order to get something that's you know repeatable and producible in that process, uh, all that you know needs to play uh, over the next five years or so. Do you think uh, you could actually make injection molding tooling? With this process now, or is it? So, all right, we're walking, walking back. Uh, so, uh, surface finish. Right. Is the could, my, could, my, like? Could you do most of it and then spark a road like the last inch or something? You know. So that's exactly um, that's exactly the way to think. You know, I actually recently came out of a stint. I worked nearly a year in our injection molding department here at Zometry um, because it was it's more it was an incubator phase, and we're kind of bringing up the technology into our business. Three D printing tooling for molds 
uh, from my experience with uh, as an additive manufacturing professional, it's still very much like a very much mad science, and it needs to happen at the place of molding. Right. So, for example, my most successful 3D printed tools using uh, direct metal sintering, so using metal uh, metal processes, have been directly purchased from a a company that their their primary job is to make uh, injection molds, like tooling. And they're actually taking these, and they have a right mindset. The mindset is, think net shape. I am buying a mm-hmm. net shape that I will then have to, I should add some milling offsets to it, so I will then need to smooth it out or grind it down, or like you said, post-burn, like do an EDM burn on it to uh, refine my shape. I've seen some very cool hand-loaded cores been made using DMLS, where they, did, where they had weird angles and stuff that... Um, were harder to achieve uh, with machining or uh, you'd have to do a very complex EDM right. uh, to get them to work. So I've seen that successfully, but keep in mind that it was designed as a net shape and they mm-hmm. what assumed from the very beginning that they would need to tweak post-process and it may fail. Like the, And also <laughs> have that assumption that it just may not work. On, on tooling using, uh, for example, photopolymers or using uh, some sort of polymer that is resistant enough to um, take that, pl- that melted plastic hold it there until it uh, solidifies and then release it. Um, I've seen successful, again, with the shops that are willing to take on the burden of molding themselves and knowing that it may it may fail. So it's more of experimental, but they've been able to get enough parts to get their validation and their materials. Um, so for those who are interested in doing that, I do recommend thinking about any features that are protruding. So say you have a very deep core. Um, when you make that in a photopolymer, so say I'm doing like one of my thermally resistant photopolymers, like Acura 48 or something like that, or even like using Bluestone, um, which is a ceramic filled uh, photopolymer, anything that's long and protruding on that on that print will be vulnerable to snapping or breaking with the stresses and pressures pressure that you're putting under. So I actually recommend machining that for, that as a core insert. And, oh, and then adding and it. Using using your using three D printing for your cool contours. So three D printing takes off the, the the beautiful contours, and then anything that's like mechanically cantilevered, uh, using machining to actually make those uh, those small pieces. So you actually piece part your mold together. And I think that can be a very good application. But again, it starts with good design, you know, right. good intentions, and the ability to take on the risk of the mold. So the reward may be high, but the risk is also high. At this point in time. With the metal printers, can you take, like, I could take a chunk of metal that already existed, put it in, and as long as I design everything properly, it could print on top of them or add to the DED metal? So you're, you're talking about, yeah, uh, Yeah, so directed energy deposition. Uh, like yeah. a, they can do that, but not DMLS. Or not yet DMLS. Nobody's tried that yet. But it, it could theoretically be possible, but really difficult to calculate the part but for DED it's being done at scale to repair blisks and stuff like that yeah. you could do like gradient metals and stuff uh, so there's a bunch of companies that can do uh, something like this like Fabrisonic or Formaloy Shaki uh, or Optimac uh, or uh, Trump uh, have technologies that can do that and they do it to repair molds for example Right. so once your mold is worn down then you just print uh, that material on top of it again. And it's used for turbine blisks uh, for the military and other military type stuff most of the time. Just keep in mind though, the, the rule still applies, net shape. So DED helps you build up metal where there's no metal there for repairs and reworks. But ultimately, it's not going to be a accurate to CAD. It will be building yep. up to that, that net composite and then you'll, you'll post machine it, mill it, or burn it in. 
Yeah, if you've ever seen it, it looks like metal cheese was. It's like, <laughs> and there's there's hybrid yeah. processes that start with a DED and then do post machining. Yeah. I, I think they're still a little immature for for market. Like it's not something that I can sell to my customer and be like confident saying, "Hey, here's uh this will get you the product you need without an engineering effort." So you know, Zometry again, we I, want I, something where you click and buy, and this one, anything that involves an engineering effort, uh, in between the click and buy and the actual production of the part, is usually not an instant quote. Uh, option for us yeah. and the lumex though that was really i don't know if you look at that lately but yep. that's that's they've been putting more work in that and that that seems like a really specifically for mold making tooling yes. uh that that seems like it, it could be maturing to a point where it could be used i think that could be really exciting just for that particular application yep I, and i think you're absolutely right it's application specific um uh you are talking pretty large time on the machine so you better have some deep cores or pockets to really justify the use of the machine i, sh I shouldn't say that because I, I think actually if you add it into your workflow just like any additive process you're probably going to find it super useful but the uh but like sometimes you look at these builds and they actually do a post million uh per i think it's like it's either every every layer or like every three or four layers yeah. they come with a machine tool and kind of mill it down and you get some beautiful parts afterward at the same time if I am running that tool, uh, like in a machine, like just if I'm just machining it out, if uh, you know, will it take less than 80 hours? And so, yeah. like you know, what's the what's the trade-off there? And so, like I said, like deep pockets, deep grooves, things where uh, that would be crazy to EDM burn in. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where metal printing can really help you there, as well as uh, you know, adding conformal cooling and adding some in interior inaccessible integration into the tool itself it has massive benefit. Uh, and conformal cooling has been like that's a big yeah it's like the big dream of this whole mold making thing specifically it's like everybody's been talking about it's really funny because we're, we're getting the, like so first used to be accelerate time to market that's what 3d printing did and then product development and then everybody was like it's mold uh, inserts and tooling and and conformal cooling was like the big dream and and still it's like the super tiny element and it's, it's it's something that is talked about a lot but not a lot of people are actually doing it yeah I, I agree and you know kind of going back to that it's it's because there's still a lot of learning in the subject matter so uh you know i've been dealing with application engineering and again we have so many technologies you know i could talk about this and i have talked about this you know for you know days and weeks on end but uh when you talk about a you know a niche thing first off you're talking about niche tool making you know you know <laughs> raise your hand if you're a tool maker in the u.s and there's going to be like 190 hands raised and then you <laughs> And then you have this idea of, I need a part so specified that I need to have conformal cooling to make it. So it's usually going to be something where I need the investment for mass production. And then yeah. you need to look at it versus, you know, the, the current alternatives. So it's, it's, hard, it's a hard market to penetrate, but it doesn't mean that it's not useful. It just means that that design intent, the knowledge of that that technology exists and it's out there, that, that education needs to come in. Uh, like I said, I'm a little bit more boring because you know I'm I'm looking for click and buy, uh, you know, yeah. experience. Uh, but there's still so many te technology out there that are just mature, repeatable, um, accessible right now, uh, and that's mm -hmm. really what we're pushing on. You know, at, at Zometry is that, uh, you know, if you order DMLS, we could do some minor post processing, like uh, we can, um, you know, open up some holes or uh, you know add tabs or inserts if you if you need them. But you're still going to get that net that net finish to it. We're not going to do the post-contour machining of the part, for example. Some of our processes have some post-processing. So like, for example, uh, SLS nylon, we do some media tumbling. Uh, we could do some dye finishes. Uh, uh, Multi-jet fusion, same thing. You could add dye to it. And actually, I like multi-jet for like rugged applications because I can 
um, if I scratch it, it scratches black. Um, it's actually mm -hmm. because they use this pigment to create the um, to generate enough heat to create the center effect. Um, it actually, is black through and through. And I used to do military stuff, and it was very useful. SLA is great for those fit checks before molds, and kind of like the cosmetic show show pieces. And it has its uses for post anything that needs post finishing. And FDM mm -hmm. is that you know is materials. It's pretty big. It's pretty in that material. I need polycarbonate. I need Ultim. I need uh, um, PCABS. You can print it, but the trade off is is cosmetic. So. There's options that are out there. They're off the pedestal. They're just another, you know, tool on the shop floor. You know, we, when you're looking at, um, you know, some of these things, like you said, mold tool making these niche industries, again, they exist. They have incredible value, but it's still a lot of engineering uh, to, to really make it as useful. And, and a lot of, you know, almost uh, tribal knowledge. Like you almost have to burn yourself a few times on the stove before you learn how to use it right. Oh, but that's I think that's what's kept our market going, and that's why you know application engineers are gold dust at the moment, and 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 also just people who manage who know how to manage a shop floor and a three D printing person, and and in most even production environments now, you've got one guy who's doing the software side of things, and he is just he knows this kind of thing, he knows how to orient parts, or he knows how to do build strategies, and and he can't even explain a lot of the stuff, right? Yeah, uh, and it just—it's oh yeah, you just put it 15 degrees. Why do you do that? Yeah. Like, it's oh, the you just black put it 15 art. degrees. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, That's why. I mean, I think I'm not entirely sure at this point. I'd fly a 3D printed airplane. You know, uh, it's it, there is a lot of stuff in there that we're just like it's art, and 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 I'd like to kind of beat that the hell out of it because we need to go for a part where it's where it's much more yeah, manufacturing oriented, reliable, repeatable. It was probably a few years ago. I was doing a talk, and someone asked me like, "What would you like to see, Greg?" And uh, I was, uh, I said, you know what? I, I think it's crazy that I don't see right now is I don't see 3D printing of urethane, silicones, or epoxies uh, because we do, deal with it, with casting all the time. But I just think like it's a two-part mix. And it's a curable resin. Like, what am I missing here? And then all of a sudden, carbon comes out with their TED talk, and you're like, oh, there it is. And so carbon, you know, used to be called clip, but it's digital light synthesis. They're kind of bridging some some gap there where you're having like almost a plug and play part with mechanical function to it. So it's somewhat cosmetically appealing, like it's more you know just as much as SLA is with a mechanical function. So there's there's definitely material science and some innovations to technology that's existing right now that are getting you closer to that. Hey, this thing I make is qualified. It has you know it's it's isotropic, like you know uh, DLS is actually doing a continuous instead of a um, DLP shot per layer. There, the the parts always moving, and it's creating a video essentially of that, of the uh, of the cross sections. And so you you're getting properties that are more reliable from the onset uh, to get those um, uh, to get parts in hand that can be functional. Uh, I know, like even DMLS. Like if I was doing any aerospace part of DMLS, I would actually hip it uh, before I mm -hmm. um, would do any make it any flight ready because at least that recrystallizes the uh, metal of the part and uh, guarantees me uh, to a certain level of confidence that any minor super microscopic imperfections are actually um, uh, mitigated uh, throughout the part without having to do destructive testing. So I mean, there's stuff there. It's just again the distribution of it, the availability of it. You know, it's it has different maturities. Yeah, but then you also also CT scan the part just in case you wrecked it anyway. <laughs> of course, yeah, I, I would still yeah. There's there's a big difference between the words uh, non-flight and flight, uh, and especially yeah. you know even here at Zometry, we 
we keep an eye out for that because we have um, we're actually uh, I think it was nine out of ten of the top ten aerospace uh, companies are customers of Zometry, uh, and it may be ten out of ten now. Uh, but the uh, but the, yeah, even though we're AS ninety one hundred as as an organization, you know anything that's really on that flight side is done still with traditional manufacturing. Uh, like really anything we're working on on that side, uh, even you know non flight high fidelity work is typically going to be machined uh, versus additive mm-hmm. manufactured. Unless it's just a fit check or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big gulf between like actually what's happening and what will. I, I think you know, given the investment they're doing in the production and certification, um, you know, and also qualifying materials and parts and stuff, I think you know it's inevitable that we'll get there. But I think we are a little bit further away maybe than, than people would think. I'm hopeful, but uh, software I think is going to lead the way. I really think a lot of the technology exists. It's just how. Software helps incorporate some of the, uh, like, helps predict the outcome up front, like, th- through virtual machines. And uh, and then, yeah, post-processing technologies and, and slight innovations in the technology actually makes a part. All those things combined, again. Uh, but I, I still lean a lot on software because software uh, can take a lot of the guesswork out or the tribal knowledge, uh, as mm-hmm. I said before. Uh, I totally agree with you. I think I think software is a key to un- unleashing the the manufacturing potential through your printing. I'm, where I don't agree with you, or I, or I don't, I'm not as hopeful as you are, is, is on carbon, for example, as a as a manufacturing technology. You know, I don't. You know, I think in some applications. I mean, if you're looking at a Visalign, you're not talking about you're talking about millions of parts, right? So, uh, tens of thousands of parts a day, but but you're not talking about uh, a huge amount of material because the parts are all really small. And then maybe it makes sense to to use a thermoset material. Uh, but if you're looking at carbon, if you see the materials that those materials are made out of, and you see some of the the processing materials they use in the process, and, and the type of, of of dangerous materials those are those are made out of, uh, and that coupled with the fact that that it's a you know it, it's a thermoset, to me it doesn't really make sense in in, in uh, to, to to use this as a production technology. I'm not as hopeful about that as. Uh, uh, yeah, hopeful about that technology clip as is being able to produce uh, uh, solid geometries or large geometries or parts that are, that are not uh, with a, with a, with a very very big cross section. Well, I completely agree with you on uh, on the geometry side because there's like them's the rules, right? When you talk about photo photopolymer thermosets, is uh, mitigating my cross section per layer, um, you know, mm-hmm. reducing. Uh, you know, I have to change my speeds for uh, for cure time, for example. So that seven-minute video on the TED Talk, you know, he had a part that had very small cross-sections per layer. Yeah. He was able to make a part in seven minutes. What you don't know is that there's a four-hour post-cure in a, in a thermal oven afterwards. Right. But, but you know, <laughs> there's uh, – but it's – I mean, that's still not bad. It's not bad no, no, in no, any way, shape, or form. But, yeah, there's there are design rules. Uh, just like mm-hmm. any other process that we have, um, is there's the DFM or um, you know design for additive manufacturing. Uh, you know, like Terry Holers likes to say there. Uh, but you need to think about your process, what your intention is, especially for production. Um, and I think you you mentioned you think in SLS, and a lot of times, like I've been in that world too. It's like where you know, am I giving exit channels? Am I giving clearances here? How am mm-hmm. I going to reduce the scan time per layer? Even when I do build setups. Do I stagger my part? So if there's one portion of my part that has a um, large cross-section to it, I don't want those all to be on the same Z-plane because you actually start creating a weird heat bump in the middle of your build. And so like you stagger them out and you evenly distribute them. Um, so you actually can distribute now in a lot of nesting software by cross-section. 
mm-hmm. and not just by like you know like line them all up on you know z level 10 millimeters or whatever you know it's it's a uh, it's a lot more sophisticated now like i said i just came from molding uh molding is the mm-hmm. most design sensitive process uh that you know is out there right now like if you you can't just be like you know i kind of like that thick wall there let's leave it but i don't want to sink like it's gonna it will sink like you know like you 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 can't fight plastic you're like i don't like what abs is doing here so let me tell abs to be different like it's gonna it's gonna win uh so so you know in in uh additive manufacturing it's not a cheat code all the time for design it has more flexibility more freedom but knowing what process you have and what, you, what your intention is with it. So if it's a prototype, go for it. You know, you may have some deviations. Get you know, just get a razor blade and some sandpaper, and we'll figure it out. Uh, but if you're looking for production runs, you need to have that intent. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a, that's a really exciting thing. I mean, we could maybe do another episode at one point about design yeah. for additive manufacturing, because part part of that is that that I believe it's like kind of like saying like in order to make pizza, you have to learn Italian first, right? I think it's a hugely limiting. Uh, uh, thing for industry, uh, especially we can't like now it's like fashionable to say like, oh, send your guy for a two week course. And I'm like, we can't do that up until, you know, they have to be able to make things like jigs and fixtures and, and, and parts that come out right, let's say, in order for them to get their toes wet. We can't yeah. just ask them to have that much upfront investment. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you. We'll always need a, a big design for additive kind of component and knowledge. And, and if we start making millions of something or in a qualified or a GMP or whatever type of environment, but, but, but just in the initial stages, like I, I do agree with you. Software is the solution for all this and should all be like point and click and, and, and you know, one click 3d printing should be the, the, the ultimate goal for us to really expand our industry. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, this is a, again, a, it's a good, uh, plug in for some stuff that I'm doing, uh, with Zometry. So I'm building, uh, with our team here, uh, a knowledge base a knowledge hub, to help learn more about the processes, strengths, and trade-offs. Um, I personally have done uh, several videos, uh, kind of edutainment videos some ways, like comparing different processes to each other, um, surface finish uh, uh, videos, um, when to choose SLS versus MJF, when to choose uh, Polyjet versus SLA. Uh, and then we have our design guides online as well. So Zometry, you know, we're a platform. And like I said, we're trying to host as many technologies as we can and give you these options for instant configurability, quoting, and with uh, you know, with that comes that knowledge base. No one knows tech technologies off the you know off the top of their head. Uh, so we try to give the guidance there to help you figure that out straight on the site. I think uh, that's about the time we have. But thank you very much for allowing us all to geek out on an extreme level for three D printing with technologies, all the variety. And uh, we should definitely recommend everyone check out zometry.com uh, for for their needs for. All their needs to do prototypes. All their needs. <laughs> yeah, right. All the things. All the, all the things. All the thing. It'll even do shopping for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> walk the dog. Yeah. Um, but no, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the 3D Pod. It's it's been entertaining. It, it's been it's been a pleasure, and uh, like I said, we can geek out of this. So I hope to talk to you guys more. Thank you. And that was uh, a great and fascinating conversation. I think we definitely geeked out quite a lot. But uh, we definitely want to thank Greg Paulson for joining us. Um, we're your hosts, Maxwell Bogue and Joris Peel. And thanks for listening to the 3D Pod. Please don't forget to rate us on whatever platform that you're listening to this on. And look, uh, look around for more episodes in the future. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit 
www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.